Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. So when I think of Prince Edward Island, here's what comes to mind for me. Anne of Green Gables, red sand, and lobster, lots of lobster, lobster rolls, whole lobster. I want my lobster, but I've got someone here with me who has a different, less cliched take. Hi, Laura. Hi, Janice. Sorry about all the cliches. No, I mean, you're not wrong. Islanders love their lobster. But for me, I suppose it's a bit more nuanced. Uh, I come from a family that's been on the island for nine generations, Acadian and Irish. And of course, we're not the original inhabitants. That's the Mi'kmaq. But it's always been about the water on the island. I mean, if you look at the Mi'kmaq word, it's ebiguet, and that means land cradled on the waves. That's what it comes down to, the water. Wow, that is a beautiful name. Uh, um, by the way, listeners out there, I'm Laura Lynch. And if you are here listening, then you probably know that this is What on Earth. And I'm talking to CBC producer Jenna Graham. Today, she's going to take us on a journey through her Prince Edward Island, through a story that drew her back there. Take it away, Jenna. Thanks, Laura. I mean, I say that it's all about the water, but I should say that it's also about the shoreline. After post-tropical storm Fiona, I went back to the island uh, about a week after the storm hit. I mean, we've all seen the photos, but to see it in person was, uh, it was just absolutely devastating. Entire forest down, and the shoreline was absolutely pummeled. And I kept hearing about a story about a seawall that's really created a divide on the island. And I think it says a lot about the climate crisis on Prince Edward Island. So I started to look into it, and our story begins with an email. So uh, I'm just getting ready to send an email off to Premier Dennis King, Minister of the Environment Stephen Myers, and Minister of Lands and Agriculture Darlene Compton. It's a week before last Christmas, 2022, and 65-year-old Joan Diamond is sitting in front of her computer. Along with the email, I'm going to attach a petition with 2,000 signatures, mostly from Islanders, um, along with a document with all their comments. By Islanders, Joan means Prince Edward Islanders. There are pages of comments ranging from, this is a disgrace, to this needs to stop. That's the general theme here. On the surface, the issue is about the right to walk along the shoreline. On Prince Edward Island, most beaches are public property. Joan reads me an excerpt from the petition. Should citizens have to work this hard to convince our government to do the right thing? Premier King, we were all there when your campaign promises included vigorous protection of our lands. It's time to stand by that promise. It's time to halt this construction. The construction is a waterfront summer home belonging to a Toronto couple, Jesse and Julie Rash. And perhaps it would have gone up unnoticed, if not for one thing. 
the seawall. It's a giant rock wall that many locals say makes walking the length of the beach impossible. People who used to walk that beach, well, they can't walk it. You'd have to crawl up over Armourstone to be able to walk that stretch of beach. Jesse Rash disagrees, and others say it is passable at low tide. But we'll get to that. For a lot of islanders, beaches are sacred. And that's why Joan and the coalition are petitioning to get the seawall stopped and removed. Okay. There we go. I just sent the email to the premier and the minister. So we'll see what happens. But it's not just about being able to take a stroll along the beach. PEI is eroding. It always has been. But as climate change brings rising sea levels and temperatures, plus more frequent storm surges, the island's being reclaimed by the sea faster than ever before. On average, the island is losing 28 centimeters of land every year. That's almost a foot. In some places, storm surges have claimed up to five meters of land. That makes PEI one of the most vulnerable places in the country when it comes to the climate crisis. And scientists and engineers agree that seawalls can actually make it worse. You know, there was a, a previous Minister of Environment in Canada that, that uh, said the impact of climate change was going to be PEI breaking into three islands. You know, uh, that's a very serious threat here. Uh, with the coastal erosion and rising sea levels, uh, it's a very real possibility. And people with Fiona have really seen it happen. So uh, that's, I think, in part why this is such a sensitive issue. I'm walking with Bryson Guptill and his dog, Lily. Bryson isn't a scientist. He's a retired public servant who worked as a senior policy advisor, both in Ottawa and on PEI. These days, though, he's known as the founder of the Island Walk, a 700-kilometer hiking route that's been called PEI's El Camino. Hikers circumnavigate the island using trails, red dirt roads, and, wherever possible, the beach. Bryson was the first person to post about the wall on Facebook. Down there on the shore, there's the new development. Wow, you can see it from here. You can see it from here. We're on the North Shore in an area called Blooming Point. It's not far from Point de Roche. That's where the wall is and where we're heading today. A couple of kilometers away, and you start to see the seawall visible on the horizon, gray boulders rising up out of the ruddy sand. On the bank, there's construction where a house once stood, now demolished by the new owners. Bryson says that over the years, you could actually measure the island's erosion against the old property. Because of all the erosion, it had actually become much closer to the ocean than it used to be. And as a result, probably 20 years ago, the folks that lived there had to build a new seawall. So there was a, you're used to seeing something down there. And we would walk down often to that house and around the seawall to get further down the beach. So it's a beautiful, undisturbed beach. It's been like this, of course, forever. And then we noticed that um, there was some construction that was beginning to happen. The old seawall, which was built from creosote-soaked timber, was removed by the new owners. Now a replacement was being put in. And so we became quite concerned about how that was happening. Seawalls are among the most common coastal defense systems made of hard materials like concrete, boulders, or steel. The idea of building a wall to keep back the sea 
was once a common method of protecting a home. But a recent report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that even though seawalls might reduce impacts to people and buildings in the short term, they can cause long-term exposure to climate risks. That's because they can block the natural movement of waves that would otherwise replenish beaches, which can cause damage to wildlife habitat and trouble for entire communities. Top among the concerns is beach loss, both in front of the wall and beside it, something called flanking erosion. This is what happens with armor stone protection. On both sides, the, uh, the dynamic of the waves shoots to the edges, and on both sides of the development, there's an, an extraordinary amount of erosion. Seawalls have been at the center of controversy many times over the years. In the early 2000s, a university in Wisconsin built a seawall along Lake Michigan, and neighbors found that the shorelines at their homes had eroded by 40 feet about 12 meters, within a decade. Property values plummeted, and at least one house had to be demolished because the shoreline was just too eroded to keep the building standing. The combination of storm surges and seawalls can make erosion particularly noticeable. Many PEI beaches experienced erosion linked to Fiona. Drone footage gathered by CBC last year showed significant erosion around the wall following the storm. The rashes suggest that their seawall likely mitigated damage, but government officials have said the opposite, that this wall has contributed to erosion at Point de Roche. A question to the Minister of Environment, Energy and Climate Change. What legislation and regulations exist to prevent shoreline armoring in one spot that negatively impacts neighboring properties? This is MLA Brad Trivers in the PEI legislature in November 2022. The question is being put to Stephen Myers, the Minister of Environment, Energy and Climate Action. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. So there, there's nothing that, that would protect the adjacent shoreline. I think it's the, it's the crux, it's part of the crux of the Point Roche argument is that if you look at the pictures post Biona, it's really accelerated the erosion next to it. And that's what armoring will do in places that have it that the, the neighbors don't. So we, it's a policy that we have to get right. Should we allow it at all? Should we force people to pull back? Like, what are we going to do to best protect Prince Edward Island from climate change? And, and I don't know the answer, but we, because I'm not the expert in it. I've never come across another issue that's riled so many islanders. Facebook groups, letters to the editor, the coalition's petition. I asked Bryson why this seems to be a breaking point. The reason it's become so much of an issue is this is an existential threat for Prince Edward Island. The island is more vulnerable than any other province. Its shoreline is more vulnerable. And we expect the governments, whoever they are, to respect a public trust. And this, the public trust has been broken here. The PEI Planning Act stipulates a buffer zone for developments. According to a statement made by the province to the CBC, the development was permitted in a, quote, working policy, which decided that when it comes to existing developments already within the buffer zone... They can remain there, but any new additions or modifications cannot encroach any further seaward into the buffer. The same thinking applies to existing erosion control structures. Such as seawalls. Several journalists and other members of the public have asked to see this working policy, but it's never been released. 
According to a statement from the province, the new seawall is on the same footprint as the old seawall. At least it's no further seaward. But critics point out that the beach in front of and next to the wall has eroded, so the water is now closer to the wall. This is one of the frustrations that critics of the wall have. That in allowing this seawall, the province is failing to take the realities of climate change into account. That grandfathering a seawall is one thing on paper, and quite another on the shore. And I think that's why, in this case, um, islanders are thinking, okay, is there something we can actually do to stop this? In December of 2022, after months of public pressure, Minister Stephen Myers issued a moratorium on new shoreline protection within the buffer zone. It was a move that failed to impress Bryson Guptill. And they're allowing this development to continue, even though they've declared a moratorium, which, in fact, is, uh, is somewhat meaningless. The Coalition for the Protection of PEI is hosting a forum. There's more than 100 people here gathered in a community centre in Charlottetown. My name is Dale Small. In particular, in, in regard to Pointe de Roche, I've visited there uh, three times. And, uh, you know, starting from the very first look, I was shocked. Uh, the only thing I can think of is this all out of sight, out of mind type of uh, scenario. But in this particular case, uh, people discovered it and caught on to it. My name is Marion. I live in Trakady, just uh, down the beach from uh, Pointe du Roche. And uh, I'm just insulted and angry that anyone would have the gall to put boulders on a beach. So, yeah, we want those boulders removed. What we're approaching used to be the beach. And what is it now? It's solid rock. Bryson and I have been making our way down the beach, and we're getting close to the wall. You know, hundreds and hundreds of tons of, uh, of armor stone. And you can see how far it sticks out. This is the first time I've seen it in person, and it's even bigger than it looks in the photos. Giant boulders piled on top of each other tower over us. But while I'm looking up, Bryson is more interested in what's happening around us. So you'll notice here that the sand dunes kind of taper down and disappear. And there's this little stream that comes out from the Darash uh, pond. What happened with Fiona, because the water was two meters, two and a half meters higher than it is now, they scooted right back into that marsh. And with the high winds blowing on there, the water went back more than 100 meters into that marsh zone. So that's the kind of thing that happens when you've got this sort of development. It forces the water around the armor stone, pushes it down on both sides. And so that, that will blow through eventually right into the marsh, which will jeopardize this whole point when it happens. So this whole wetland could disappear. Who do you blame here? Is this the landowners? Is this, yeah, I guess who, who's at fault? I don't blame the land developer. The, uh, the company that did this, uh, I mean, they're trying to make a buck. This is a, a prime piece of real estate. There are no other uh, places along this shore. Uh, I blame the government. I reached out to the property owners. Jesse Rash responded by email. 
It is regrettable to see the politicization of our cottage development. In a nutshell, we bought a beautiful property with a rundown seawall and hired experts to build a replacement shoreline protection system. We were not hands-on in any of the shoreline design or permitting details. We did express our desire to the development team for it to be as natural as possible, and I'm confident it will look good once it's naturalized in the near future. Our work has been lawfully approved, and it will be respectfully seen through to completion. We love PEI, and would be pleased if the discussions spurred by our cottage lead to changes that islanders feel best serve all the stakeholders involved in permitting shorefront property development. In another email, he wrote that, There are still people who believe the beach has been blocked by our work. This lie was repeated often in recent weeks, and we don't expect everyone to embrace the truth. I was there, and to get around the wall, you either have to accept that you're going to get very wet or do a bit of dangerous rock climbing. I'm told that this is the case except on a still day when the tide is at its lowest. The owner sent me photos showing you couldn't walk past the old seawall at certain times either, like on a windy day at high tide. I never saw the old wall in person, but Bryson says... We would walk down often to that house and around the seawall to get further down the beach because the beach goes all the way three and a half kilometers from here and uh, then you can walk another Where things stand now, this rock wall is firmly in place and there's no sign that it's going to be taken down. But when it comes to the story of erosion and protecting PEI shorelines, there's a bigger picture. There are a lot of elements contributing to the island's receding beaches, high winds, rising sea levels, and the very foundation of the island itself, a crumbling sandstone. So what's the solution? Yeah, this is what they do, they just block wind. (laughs) Yeah. Daniel McRae has an idea. Living shorelines. I work with uh, the McPhail Woods Ecological Forestry Project. And we're up here at the PEI National Park near Dalvey by the Sea looking at some windblown crumholtz. Crumholtz are plants, not a specific species of plant, but something that can happen to trees and shrubs on coastal windswept areas, which includes a lot of PEI. Daniel describes crumholtz as rugged, scraggly. <laughs> it's a German word in origin, and it stands for bent wood. They also call them kneeholtz, which I think is bent knee. What happens is that wind, sweeping in and gathering speed over the ocean, not only bends these coastal plants over, but it kills the top of their growth, so only their lowest branches grow. They can go totally horizontal, where they look like a carpet along the ground. So in our highest areas, like up at East Point and stuff, these really windy cliffs, you'll have these spruce trees that are growing 12 feet horizontally. They're often conifer trees, like white spruce, but also shrubs like wild rose, bayberries, and juniper. Yeah. So as you can see, the crumholts here are incredibly dense. There's a lot of crawling when you want to explore them. There's a whole bunch of kind of sub-habitats of crumholts that we found on PEI through this research. But uh, effectively, it's a reaction of the ecosystem to these growing conditions to create stronger growth forms that can resist these winds, kind of diffuse that energy, and then they end up protecting both the shoreline and erosion as well as the inland forest behind them. You can actually feel the difference. When we step kind of further out from the crumholts, definitely 
feeling the brunt of the wind more. So that's one of the things that we're looking at with the Krumholtz stew. And, and this is a neat thing. You know, when European settlers first arrived on PEI, it was over 90, you know, 4% forested. And you had these massive, you know, beech and oak trees, these trees that generally don't grow along the coast. And they were found not far from the coast. And it was these Krumholtz growths that diffuse that wind energy and that wave energy to slow erosion and keep it at a, you know, reasonable level. We're an eroding island. We're going to erode. But these kept it at a reasonable level. And then they also provide that buffer. But Daniel had a more recent point of comparison, too. Fiona really changed the coastlines. And these Krumholtz areas seem to come through these events the best. You know, after this Hurricane Fiona, I've been out looking at my sites, getting worried about what happened. And honestly, the healthiest ones especially, but most of them look relatively untouched. Living shorelines grow over time, working with the natural environment rather than against it. Living shorelines happen naturally, but they can also be encouraged, helped along by humans. The idea is to take cues from whatever's natural to the area. In some places, this can mean a marsh, in others a reef. Beyond this island, Krumholtz also happen in Maine, New Hampshire, British Columbia, Newfoundland and Labrador, and Oregon. But Prince Edward Island is perfectly suited to them, and that's an important point for Daniel. Because they're the ecosystems, they're the natural island ecosystem solution, they kind of happen. And conditions want to grow windblown trees that protect everything else and slow down erosion. So, you know, a viable solution might be leaving sites for a couple of seasons, letting something get established, and then going in with enhancement plantings. The Rashists have a website dedicated to their property, and there's a section about plans for naturalizing the seawall. Things like using native soils, growing indigenous plants, and placing, quote, boulders and logs in strategic locations to assist with the mitigation of element-driven erosion, The website describes a goal of stabilizing and naturalizing the embankment and reducing erosion. But it's unclear how long that will take, or if there's another storm like Fiona, how effective any of this will be. When we talk about the development at Point de Roche, do you think something like Krumholtz and and investing in reforesting shoreline with Krumholtz is a viable solution. Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) I think it's the solution. Um, You know, I think that comes with caveats. A lot of times when we talk about solutions, what we mean is like a quick solution. Then there's a quality solution that may not be quite as quick, but in the long run has multitude more benefits, multitude less worries, costs, and dangers. And that's what these ecosystems are. I mean, it not only slows down erosion, protects our shore, not only provides habitat and uh, food for all kinds of wildlife, they also provide protection to our forests closer to the shore, allowing various different species to grow so we can have a healthier habitat, more diversity. You know, they're leaching nutrients into the marine ecosystems. They're doing all of these functions that a rock wall can't do. So I think it's a long-term solution because the rock walls, they arrive in certain spots and then everywhere near them tends to suffer the consequences of that. Um, and they'll need to be repaired. They're not a long-lasting solution. So these, to me, I, I think it's the solution. I think it's just sometimes adjusting our expectation to what a solution's going to look like. The whole North Shore of PEI probably wants to grow some version of Krumholtz, almost all of it, and a lot of other parts of the coast, too. So possible solutions here. According to Daniel McRae, 
a living shoreline, and according to Bryson Guptill, legislation. There's a different context that people have to start focusing on now, and I think the government's trying to get their heads around this, but the context is climate change. The protection of coastal areas is an extremely important priority for any government that's in place here. That's something that Joan Diamond, the petition writer, is still trying to make happen with impressive tenacity. So December 18th, we sent the petition to Darlene Compton, Stephen Myers, and the Premier, and no one got a response. I'm disheartened, I'm disappointed, but then there's still a part of me that hopes that they'll realize that people are starting to pay attention and that they need to change the way they're doing things. We live on an island. It's basically a little sandbar in the middle of the ocean, right? We know that Stonewall, it erodes everything around it. Point de Ross will eventually be sitting out in the middle of the ocean. Climate specialists have said that that natural shoreline protection is the absolute best way to go. We know. That story was produced by Jana Graham and A.C. Rowe of CBC's Audio Documentary Unit. So far, there's no large-scale effort to plant or enhance Krumholtz in PEI. But the province tells CBC they are working with the School of Climate Change and Adaptation at the University of PEI to develop a new coastal zone policy. And Krumholtz are on the list of solutions they're considering. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. It's graduation season and young people are on the job hunt. A group of them tried a kind of in-your-face way to get the work they want in the climate change sector by going straight to the federal jobs minister. How did it go? Stick around. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Right now, though, we're heading to Alberta, where wildfires are still spreading destruction and worry. When evacuation orders went out in some communities, some people left their homes, but others decided to defend their property. Our neighbours to the north of us, they have thousands of animals. They cannot relocate them. We aren't just being stubborn and saying we aren't leaving. We are trying to save our farmland and save the animals from having to be let out. There's no one coming to help us. If we're not being helped, we have to help ourselves. I do not regret whatsoever staying to help my community. It was the most inspiring thing I've ever seen in my life, that people that don't even know each other can work together seamlessly, safely, and make a difference. And if we had not done what we did on Saturday, I have no idea where the fire would be at this point in time. That was Samantha Calliou, the co-owner of the Go Hard Ranch in Yellowhead County, Alberta. 
Across the world, Australia has grappled with how to handle the urge to stay and defend property. My next guest is in Vancouver to share hard-won lessons from deadly wildfires down under. Christina Hanger is the community engagement lead for a fire authority in the Australian state of Victoria. And she's with me here in studio. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming in. Christina, I'm curious, when you hear what Samantha Kelly had to say about staying on her properties despite an evacuation order, what comes to mind? What do you make of that? It sounds familiar. <laughs> it does. It sounds very familiar. I mean, we have so many people who work in the uh, the agricultural sector or you know have huge numbers of livestock in Australia and they they face the same the same challenging question of you know we our whole our whole livelihood is invested in this particular stock and what do we do yeah of course mm-hmm. and now Australia is no stranger to devastating even deadly wildfires mm-hmm. um how's the country dealt with that tension uh, between evacuating people for their safety and the desire by some to stay and defend their property So in Australia, we don't uh, have mandatory evacuation. We have a really robust uh, warnings framework where we do provide uh, really strong recommendations and we do tell the community to evacuate uh, so that they move to safer locations, recognising that with our particular fire history, our 2009-1920 bushfires, we did lose a huge number of life, especially in our 2009 fires uh, and a huge uh, 1.5 million hectares of bushland in our 1920 fires just in my province or in my state alone. Of course, absolutely, that, that is our key messaging to the community that leaving early before a fire starts is the safest option. The kinds of fires, especially as they increase in the intensity and the frequency as a result of climate impacts, there will be fires where it is not feasible for people to stay and actually defend their property. And so that preservation of human life over other aspects is what takes priority. How has your messaging changed, though, over the years? Mm-hmm. So prior to 2009 and the significant loss of life that we had in Victoria, uh, we used to encourage people to prepare their property in preparation to stay and defend or leave early. However, following uh, or the, the learnings from our Royal Commission that happened following the significant loss of life uh, has changed that for us. And so now we strongly recommend leaving prior to a fire actually starting because in 2009, we found so many people were fleeing last minute and they were dying on our roads, whether it was head-on accidents due to the smoke or whether it was because trees were coming down and people were disoriented, etc. So leaving early before that fire starts is really important. So in the black summer fires in, in Australia in 2019-2020, and mm-hmm. the world knows, remembers that so well, um, you changed it and you used this different messaging, still some people stayed? Correct. Yes, so, we did see that uh, in several communities along the southeast part of Australia. Many did try to leave and they moved to safer locations. Number one, it allows the emergency responders to be able to focus on actually fighting the fire on township protection rather than actually trying to find uh, any humans that might actually still be residing in that place, maybe sheltering inside. So they can move and operate more confidently knowing that they're not trying to find people because people have evacuated. And secondly, better things such as, you know, less impact from the smoke, less impact from obviously burns, scolds, etc. by actually remaining in the area. So how many people did end up staying? I mean, maybe a percentage-wise, if you want to do that. Well, it'd be difficult to give you a percentage. Right. Um, I wouldn't have that off the top of my head. Okay. But I know that one of our very famous popular tourist towns in Victoria is a place called Malacuda. We ended up having over 4,000 people, despite all the evacuation orders, actually remain in that really high-risk uh, high township. So 4,000 people... Uh, sheltering in that town as the fires were arriving, which obviously was a very stressful and traumatic experience for a number of Victorians. I actually remember the images from that. So does that mean your new communication patterns 
failed or, or you have to come back and revisit it again? Or? I definitely wouldn't say that it didn't work. I mean, we had thousands and thousands of people who did move out of that area. And I mean, that's a credit to the emergency services, to our volunteers, uh, to all of our communications, obviously, uh, leveraging the different platforms. So whether that's social media, news outlets, or even the local community bulletin board and using local leaders to get that message out. Um, we did have a loss of life. A number of them were actually operational people uh, who, uh, you know, trees coming down, etc., which is tragic. So these were people fighting the fires? Fighting the fires, yeah. correct, or on, on the roads. However, fortunately, um, with all the work in mitigation and preparation as agencies, uh, we didn't see that significant loss of life that we saw in 2009. So 2009 was 173 just in Victoria, and in 2020 we saw five people. That is a big difference. I'm, I'm wondering, knowing that, then when people make that choice to stay behind, does that ever get frustrating for you? <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, smiling. <laughs> I think it's frustrating because um, obviously in Victoria, we've seen absolutely devastating loss of life. We've seen the impact that it has on communities, the impact it has on our emergency service workers. They carry that trauma. The people who go in afterwards to actually help communities rebuild. And after you've experienced something like that, it changes. It changes your community, it changes the fibre of people's makeup. So it's frustrating that uh, we, not even just in Victoria, but we as humans sometimes fail to actually take these learnings, these scars that we have, and use it to make better decisions moving forward. When I see people in the fires here, that's the reaction I have. Why are you mm. staying? Mm. Absolutely. For themselves. Uh, for their families, for their loved ones. I hear these stories again out of 2009. I remember speaking to a lady once and she and her husband had stayed to fight the fire and they sent their kids to a friend's house who were in a safer area. And the kids had years and years of therapy following that event because they didn't know whether their parents were going to survive that fire. And that was the trauma. Whilst their house was fine, the trauma that it had on their loved ones, that's formed them in their growing years. I just wanted to bring it back to Alberta, and I, and I know that the, it's not something that you've been looking at or, mm. or studying at all, but I'm sure you have some wisdom to offer. There's been renewed criticism of budget cuts to firefighting there over the past decade. In 2019, the provincial government shut down a program that saw firefighters fly in on helicopters, rappel down to tackle the blazes early on. With cuts like that, can you understand why property owners might not be confident in government's plan to protect them, and so that's why they decide to stay and fight? Mm. I think it's a really good question, and I think it comes to communities and their reliance on government, and then also this community resilience word that we hear a lot about. And that doesn't mean that the community exists without the support or without the protection of, you know, agencies. Obviously, that's why agencies exist, is to support. But I also think that that's maybe a, a global picture where as there's an increasing number of disasters, increasing a number of hazards, there's only so much money and there's only so many resources that have to be spread around. So the reliance of this shared responsibility between agency and community to both play their part in in protecting what's valuable is, is incredibly important. I, I wonder, is that an important part of your work then, is to build that trust with the community? Absolutely. And so, what's the most effective way of doing that that you know of? I think it's about governments being very honest about what we can and what we cannot do, not over-promising. Uh, at the same time, it's working with communities to understand what it is that they value. And you know, if their plan is to stay and defend, ensuring that there are the skills and the capability if that fire is fightable, if, <laughs> that they will be able to do so and do safely. 
as the climate changes, we are going to see more of them. And so what is it that communities and agencies can do together before a fire starts to actually both protect the people, the valuable assets, but again, preservation of human life? Because ultimately, whilst it would be devastating to lose um, lose a farm, lose a house, especially you know, the sentimental value or the economic importance of some of these things, if you are alive, then there is hope that that can actually be rebuilt. And as we talk about this, we've also talked about the importance of communication and information. I just wanted you to listen to a clip from a woman named Gail St. Dennis. She lives in Lasar Lake, which is an hour outside of Edmonton, which is the capital of Alberta. And she was forced to leave her home. It's really hard to find uh, good information. I, I understand that there's uh, fires across multiple counties and municipalities right now, uh, but there wasn't really one specific resource to be able to get information. So I was going to uh, different Facebook pages for uh, different counties, different websites, trying to stay updated, but it was really hard to find current information. Uh, it would have been good to have uh, a central resource for communicating and having uh, specific times that uh, information would, was being communicated to evacuees and potential uh, threatened areas. Just with that kind of thing in mind, what, what have you learned in your work about the best ways to communicate leading up to and during a wildfire emergency? Mm. Well, we just heard it right then, isn't it? That's That right there is the end user. That is the target audience of the information that we as agencies actually produce. And if the community is calling for a centralised location, a one-stop shop for all of their information, then that's what the community needs. Now, that doesn't necessarily align with maybe some of our uh, jurisdictional boundaries or this is where my organisation starts and yours stops. But human-centred design or keeping the community at the centre of what it is that we do would see us try and find a way. Uh, in Victoria, what we've learned, uh, we have a platform relatively similar to the uh, BC Wildfires app or a government-based app where there's information about hazards. And uh, what we've seen is that continually evolve and morph into a one-stop shop for the community, which includes some information about the, the size of the fire and the status of the fire so people can make informed decisions, information and updates about agencies and what they're doing to be able to combat that fire, but importantly, action-based statements around what people can do at that point in time. And they're really succinct and they're informative as to what actions it is that we recommend. It also includes all the links to all the relevant sites, such as what roads are closed, what's the weather going to be doing, access for disability and inclusion lines, etc. So one-stop shop because that's what the community needs. Now, you work in Australia, but you're here in Vancouver talking to other fire professionals about what you do. Why is it important for fire agencies around the world to be reevaluating how they tackle wildfire and communicating risks to the public? Uh, I'm here because in Australia, we've had some incredible fires. And as a result, we've had some very eye-opening learnings that we're continuing to implement. And I think as agencies, it's really important globally, especially in an age where it is so easy to share information, for us to learn from each other. Why should one community have to burn so that we can learn how to implement it in another community when we can learn more globally and save, save that trauma and save that hardship? What is at stake then in all of this? Obviously, ultimately, it's that, that protection of life. It's that protection of, of community and resilient communities, which I know is a word that kind of gets thrown around a little bit. 
but resilient communities are going to be incredibly important as we move forward, move forward into whatever the future looks like. I think in a way where, especially maybe in your more urban or peri-urban areas where there's a lot more connection digitally, but the human interaction is different. Finding ways to bring people in into the fold or in getting involved in protecting themselves and protecting the communities and their loved ones is going to be incredibly challenging, but even more important than ever. How did you get into this line of work? <laughs> it's actually a really great question. I was um, sitting in a pub because I'm Australian <laughs> and I was watching Typhoon impact the Philippines and I uh, was sitting there watching uh, this devastation and my dad actually turned to me and said, well, you like helping people so much, why don't you go over there and help them? So I actually started out as a volunteer in one of our flood and storm uh, agencies and fell in love with the sector. The work is so meaningful. You get to work with community, vulnerable communities, people when they are most vulnerable um, at a time where it really matters. So that's how I started as a volunteer and uh, it's been 12 years since then and <laughs> a lot of study and a lot of uh, eye-opening experiences since but wouldn't change it. Christina Hanger, I wish that we had less to talk about, but unfortunately in the world that we're in, I think that fire, wildfire is not going away anytime soon. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. And you can get everything you need to make decisions about the wildfires as well as heat and flooding at cbcnews.ca and CBC Radio 1. And now for our next story. Producer Rachel Sanders has popped by the studio. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Laura. Um, so this next story has some personal relevance for you. You got a son who's about to graduate from high school. I do, yeah. This can be such a busy time of year for people at that stage of life. A lot of questions about the future and a lot of this kind of thing. I think we just have to buzz. What, what time is it? Okay. How's everyone feeling about their job application? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, got to admit, I'm a bit confused here. I thought I was going to hear prom sounds or pomp and circumstance from the graduation ceremony, but that sounds like people applying for jobs. What's going on? Well, it's a bit of a cross between a job application and climate activism. This happened on a beautiful sunny morning out in Delta. And for those who don't know British Columbia, that's a little city just about 25 kilometers south of Vancouver. And it's the constituency of Carla Qualtrough. Who is, if I'm remembering correctly, the Federal Minister of Employment, Disability, Inclusion, and one other. Workforce Development. Oh, very good, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd heard that this group of young people were going to her constituency office to deliver something. And I went out there to see what was going on. About a dozen people were there in this little tree-lined plaza, a lot of them clutching stuffed manila envelopes. And one of the voices you heard back there is Manvi Bala. She's a PhD student at UBC, and she wants a job working to help with climate change. I'm starting a summer internship with Northern Health Authority. I'm working on the Northern BC's climate change health and vulnerability assessment, but this is like a summer term job. And lucky for me that, you know, this internship is providing a living wage for me, but I want this to be like a long-term job. And that's exactly why Manvi is here with this group of young people at the jobs minister's office. They want the government to set up what they call a youth climate corps. That has echoes to me of the Peace Corps in the U.S., or Katimovic, an organization in Canada, both where young people volunteer on projects. And I think at least one of them, they can get a stipend. But 
What is a youth climate corps? Well, give a listen. Manvi can already picture the program in her mind. This program uh, essentially looks like, at minimum, a two-year placement for anybody under the age of 35 that wants one. Um, It's going to be a thriving living wage. And essentially, any training required for actually doing the job would be included so that anybody wanting to do it doesn't face barriers due to qualifications or academic background or, or whatnot. A two-year paid training program for people to learn how to work in climate-related jobs. She's aiming pretty high here. She is. That's right. A few climate action groups have come together to push for this, including a climate justice nonprofit called Shake Up the Establishment, which Manvi is the president of. The idea for this national program came from a group called the Climate Emergency Unit, and it's loosely based on historic efforts to address other crises, such as the Great Depression and World War II. Have you heard of President Roosevelt's so-called tree army? No, I have never heard of that at all, but I'm wondering if it's part of uh, FDR's New Deal? It is. That's right. Pre- oh, uh, I get one great one point for that. One point. <laughs> <That's> me. <laughs> Roosevelt created the Civilian Conservation Corps at a time when millions of Americans were out of work. So the point of this was to provide employment for young men and reforest areas that had been logged. They created new national and state parks and improved some existing ones. The program is credited with planting billions of trees over the course of about a decade, and it lasted until 1942. And that was the year that a lot of young American men were enlisting in the army to fight in World War II. A lot of young Canadian men, too, including my dad, were in that war. Right, yeah. Over a million Canadians stepped up to serve in the military during World War II. And the groups behind this Youth Climate Corps campaign say thousands of young Canadians are ready to step up again now to address climate change. And they're saying the government needs to find ways to mobilize them and put them to work. So that's why Manvi Bella was at Carla Qualtro's office in Delta. Exactly. So you heard Manvi and the others talking about job applications. They were actually delivering envelopes full of cover letters as a way of sending a message that young people want to work on climate change. They asked young people across Canada to write cover letters for the jobs that they think their communities need to help cut emissions and adapt to the changing climate. People submitted their address and the kind of jobs that they identify. And across the country, there were similarities, but there were also some significant differences. And I mean, another thing I want to offer is that a lot of the kind of work that really needs to be done, um, it doesn't always look like a climate job. It looks like something that's helping build resiliency within our communities. I know that from a public health standpoint, that could look like working on issues like poverty, racism, and, you know, other societal inequities. And so those kinds of jobs maybe don't scream climate, but they're what's needed to ensure no one gets behind. Yeah, that resonates because we know from the work we've done on this show that there is such a broadly based need out there right across the spectrum for all this kind of work. So when you look at it that way, there's a huge variety of jobs that could be considered climate jobs. Yeah, you really get a sense of that when you hear about the range of jobs on those cover letters. Here's another one of the people with Manvi's group. This is Taro Halfnight. He's an Indigenous youth from the Simkwa First Nation. He grew up in the B.C. interior and spent a few years fighting wildfires, actually, in B.C. and Alberta. And he read a lot of the cover letters that were submitted. So I asked him what sorts of jobs people want. So there was a lot of stuff talking about conservation and um, research in conservation areas, for sure. A lot of stuff was to do with uh, energy infrastructure especially, and renewable energy infrastructure. Um, A lot of talk about circular economies, working towards that. Uh, A lot of transit uh, infrastructure as well, and um, increasing transit, especially in BC and some of the other rural areas that are severely lacking. 
Some others were to do with wildfire response and disaster response, uh, as well as um, building up infrastructure and ensuring uh, access to communities that are more remote um, throughout BC and other rural areas. I'm trying to think of some others in my brain right now as well. <laughs> Sorry. Well, what was on yours? Did you write Mine one? Mine actually was uh, to do a lot with making a more decentralized power grid, especially in rural areas. I come from an area just aside of uh, Nelson, BC. We're very rural and we are experiencing more and more blackouts every year. These are rolling blackouts that go on for four days or longer. Very damaging for business. Um, you're losing a lot of potential income as just a financial perspective, but also can be very dangerous for families and, and other things going through emergencies in that area because they're already so um, detached from communities and from healthcare and other resources. Well, there you go. It's so much work to be done. There is, yeah. Now here is where things get a little complicated, though, because there actually is already a nonprofit group here in BC that's been doing this kind of thing for the past few years. They've been fundraising to provide paid climate-related work and training to young people, and that project is also called the Youth Climate Corps. Okay, so the group you met in Delta is pushing for a national youth climate corps, but a youth climate corps already exists in BC. That's right. Yeah, it's a small program, but it's given young people in Nelson and other places in BC work on projects like wildfire mitigation, energy retrofitting. They're hoping to hire a cohort here in Vancouver this summer for the first time. And they say this BC program is proof that a larger nationwide youth climate corps would work. So they're backing this new campaign. And someone from that organization was with the group in Delta as well. So I chatted with her about what kinds of summer jobs they're hoping to line up for people in Vancouver. Hi, my name is Sam Kuchkaripo, and um, I'm the program coordinator for Vancouver at Youth Climate Corps. We've been focusing on buildings and retrofits. You know, in construction, they need people. So we're just aiming to get, you know, kids like skilled with contractors that will give them like a meaningful experience as well. Young people are ready and, you know, climate change is going to affect them. They're they're also experiencing high levels of climate anxiety. You know, I think the good thing about this program is giving young people tangible ways to make meaningful changes in communities. And in turn, that is actually going to make them feel much better. So this all sounds really good, but but we they were talking earlier with the more BC-based group about fundraising. This costs money, and to ramp it up to the national level, that would be really a big cost, I would think. So they want government to get involved. How much are they looking for from government? Well, here's what Manvi Bala said about that. In the funding ask, it would essentially be that we're hoping maybe the federal government would fund, uh, say, one billion and that municipalities and provinces would match to a billion. Uh, And then, you know, essentially within that, you have a bit of a stake at each level. um, So people feel inclined to mobilize this program. What's at stake here? I mean, honestly, everything is at stake. Um, But one thing I'll say again from from my background in health is that those in society that are the most privileged will be the most able to adapt to the changing landscape. So those that are going to pay the biggest price, including loss of life, um, are going to be those that have these, you know, inequities and who are oppressed or historically or presently disadvantaged in society. So um, everything is at stake, but disproportionately so for those that face additional barriers. Yeah, a lot at stake. But let's just sort of recap here. The group knocked on the door of the Federal Minister of Employment's constituency office. They had their job applications in hand. They asked for a program that will get them help to work on solving climate change. A lot of help, let's be honest about that. It's a huge request from government. And I'm wondering what kind of response they got. 
Well, the minister wasn't at her constituency office in Delta on that day, but her office manager, Bernadette Kudzin, came out to meet the group. I'm happy to see you, and this is a great, wonderful cause you have. What can I do for you? I'm sorry, she's in Ottawa. Yeah, no, it's no problem. We just have petition entries to hand over to you. Oh, sure. You can, yeah, just take it. So they had a big poster with a map of Canada and the headline, Youth Have Spoken, Combat the Cost of Climate Inaction by Funding Jobs Now. And Manvi talked about the call for cover letters and all the kinds of jobs people wrote in to say are needed. This is a list, and I'm not going to read this list because it would take quite some time. But this I've read is, it as we're talking. Right. It's a quick glimpse to show you that there's so many. It's a really a breadth of jobs that are needed to build community-based resiliency. We want to do jobs that we know are good for society, for the planet. And this is an opportunity to funnel funds directly into our climate response. Can I just stop you yeah. and say this is a really important message? Thank you so much. It really is. And I'm... So at this point, all of the people holding those big manila envelopes sealed them up and one by one handed them to the minister's office manager who said she'd pass them along to the minister. Um, Obviously, the Climate Corps doesn't currently exist, but this is an aspirational campaign. So we're hoping to kind of just, um, in a theatrical way, present to you our our job applications and say that we're ready to work. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I like the transparency there, aspirational and theatricals. <laughs> the minister wasn't there, but it, it does sound like they at least got a pleasant reception. They did, yeah, and it sounded as though they were quite pleased as well with the way things went. But of course, we do want to know what Minister Qualtrough and others in the federal government think about the idea, so we did ask her to join us for an interview. We also asked for an interview with Marcy Ian. She's the federal minister for women, gender equality, and youth Neither made themselves available, but the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change emailed us a statement where they highlighted several federal programs aimed at getting young people jobs, internships, and volunteer opportunities. The statement also reads, and this is a quote, We applaud these individuals for their commitment to change. We need youth perspectives to ensure Canada's transition to a prosperous and low-carbon future is sustainable and inclusive. Well, Laura, there's plenty of applause for these young people dropping off their resumes. But those young people, I got the sense they're not looking for nice words. They want real action. So I'm going to keep watching to see if this idea of a climate core lends a permanent gig, so to speak. All right, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we just love it when you leave us a review, like uh, Howard98, T. Howard98. I really hope I've got your name right. You gave us five stars on Apple and said, I listened to a few climate-focused radio shows and podcasts, and this is one of the best. I can't always catch it on the radio, so now it's in my podcast library. I love that. Great tip, Thoward98. <laughs> you can check out our whole catalog of shows there in case you missed me hunting for herring on How Sound. What a great trip. Or our Climate Heroes episode. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Special thanks this week to the CBC's Danielle Stone, Lee Rosevere, and Jasara Sinclair. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.